right before we get to the notes, which I have some extra copies, we'll do that in a second. Go to Roman, um, go to Acts chapter 14 for a second. I believe I have five copies of the notes there. Some of you are bringing yours back. Who remembered to bring theirs back? I'm impressed. Noel, Noel, A+. Errol, you did too? Errol, you're recovering and everything, and you remember? What a guy. But go to Acts 14 for a second. I want you to see the determination of the apostles to keep preaching no matter what. These men were intent on carrying out the instructions that Jesus gave them. Against all odds, with all types of persecution coming their way, they stuck to the task. And one place where that's exemplified is Acts chapter 14. Just for a few moments, and then we'll get into the outline. Now at Iconium, again, this is Paul and Barnabas uh, preaching. At Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This is beautiful. A great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Don't think that the Lord can't use you to bring a whole family to himself, or at least to preach the gospel and then he brings a family to himself. Things, things like this can happen. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the uh, brothers. Adversaries always working, huh? So they remained for a long time speaking, how? Boldly for the Lord. You know, when you're walking with the Lord and His Spirit is within you, you're able to boldly bring out the truth of the gospel. Even if you're a quiet person, He can strengthen you to do so. So they were speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. When, when an attempt was made by both Jew, Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat, mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it. They fled to Lystra and Derbe. Nothing, nothing wrong with getting away from the stoning if you can cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And look at verse 7. I love verse 7. So what did they continue to do? They continued to preach the gospel. For some of us, our ministry would have ended right there. As soon as they were going to stone us, say, well, I guess we better go home for a while, take a month off of this hard task. But they kept preaching. It gets, well, it gets worse than that. Um, go to verse 19. At Lystra, the people are so surprised at a healing that they start worshiping the apostles and calling them by some of the names of the gods, the Greek gods. But go to 19. Again, more persecution comes their way, and particularly they get a hold of Paul. And the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul. I mean, that's throwing some large rocks at him, and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So you get the picture? He's pummeled. Probably looks terrible. Who knows how many bruises and cuts and punctures and... Anyway, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. So Apostle Paul gets right back up by the grace of God. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby, And then 21 amazes me. 
when they had preached the gospel to that city. So who does that include? Paul, who was just stoned. Just kept preaching. You can't stop this guy. He knows it's the truth. He knows what it's done in his life. He knows it's the only way of salvation. You can't stop him. He knows he is obeying God by, by continuing to preach. So we can't keep preaching in our neighborhoods. We don't, even get, we don't even get a little rock thrown at us, usually. What happens to us? What's the worst that happens to you if you bring up Christ? I brought the Lord up to somebody today, and you just get a blank face. I knew they didn't want to talk. Oh, it was at, um, Sheila and I stopped at Walgreens, and there was a young man there, and um, we were talking about the storm a little bit. And I said, and he said he heard, I said, did you hear a lot of thunder? And I said, you know, thunder really makes me think of the power of God. Man, he just turned like a blank stare. It was like done, you know. And I was like, oh, how do I, you know, usually I can keep going or whatever. And he, it, it petered out quick. It wasn't that man, young man's day to hear it, you know. But these guys keep preaching, right? So then what happens? I'll, I'll finish just that little section. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, ah, because they kept going, there was blessing. When they had preached the gospel to that city, made many disciples. I like that because, you know, it seems like it's so hard to win somebody to Christ, isn't it? And it is. But the Lord can do this, and he did this, and he does this. And they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Look, now look what they did for other people, the believers already encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of, of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Nice section, right? So now as we go to our notes tonight, which there's some on that chair if you need some. Um, I believe for you guys it's page three. I got a different book here, page four. It's the part that says the message. What characterizes the God-centered gospel message? And as we said last time, it'd be all too easy to say Jesus can make you happy, healthy, and wise, and rich, and say, who wants to believe in him? Everybody raise their hands. Everybody prays a quick prayer. And then, and then we falsely say, hey, everybody got saved. But we don't want to do that, right? Because they really need to know what the issue is. How many times did Jesus say, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand? So we know turning away from sin has something to do with it. You remember when Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You've got to really believe in Jesus. To as many as received him, John 1, 12, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Really have to believe and receive the true Jesus. And have to understand something about your own sin and certainly about his death on the cross. Can't even leave out the fact that he's God become a man. Because Jesus is not just a little prophet, not just a man. He's not half God, half man. He's fully God, fully man. So, and the more you and I can communicate to someone, the better, you know, the better they'll understand who Jesus is and by God's grace, as the Lord is working, they can make a response to the gospel. If we do it too quick and just pray a quick prayer, come down a quick aisle, boom, 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 you know, then I'd be able to say, well, 50 people got saved, but, you know, who knows what happened that day. 
The Lord can save anybody anytime. He can save somebody on one verse if he wants. But generally speaking, you look at what the apostles did. They persuaded people. They, they talked about Jesus' death and resurrection. And they, you know, they were getting the truth out. And as many times, even Jesus himself spoke about things written about himself in the Old Testament to people. And certainly the apostles did. So, on that note, we go to that section where it says the message. I believe it's at the top of page three there. What characterizes the God-centered gospel message? I have some things that are not in your notes. I'll read it. The gospel is good news that God prov provides forgiveness of sins and salvation from eternal punishment through Jesus Christ. This really is good news. And it is not wrong to start by saying, I got good news for you. At the same time, the gospel is confrontational. It calls sinners to repentance. It calls unbelievers to turn from their own efforts. You might be talking with somebody and you might ask them, you know, how they think they're going to get into heaven or something like that. And a lot of people are going to say, because I was good. You need to help that person. You say, well, wait a second. And I might, sometimes I identify with them to say, you know, I thought I was good too. But I found out that the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I found out that when I measured myself up to the Ten Commandments and other commandments and the spirit of the Ten Commandments, I was found wanting. For guys, I always say this. Jesus said, you have, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look upon a woman to lust for her, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And the average man is like, what, that's a sin? Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's a sin. Oh, I didn't murder anybody. Ah, but you, have you hated people? Have you been super angry? Jesus says that's a sin. To be angry for no good reason is a sin. To hate people is a sin. So sins are acts, really, attitudes and actions against God. I always ask people, have you ever cursed? Oh, yeah, everybody does. Well, that's a sin. One part of the Bible says we sin like we drink water, right? Like iniquity, like we drink water. It's so easy to sin. So for somebody, you'll, you'll find when you're preaching the gospel, you may have to camp on something. Other people are going to say Jesus is, um, is just a prophet. Our Muslim friends will say that. Well, that's something to work on. He's not just a prophet. He is a prophet. He's prophet, he's priest, he's king, he's God become a man. He's a lot of things. So the gospel is confrontational. And then my notes say, from this book, this has never been a popular message. Paul, Peter, James, Stephen, and many others were martyred for preaching it. You've got to keep that in mind. People were stoned for preaching this. People were burned at the stake for preaching this. So not everybody's going to be happy when you start preaching the gospel. That's okay. You're doing your job. The Lord does his job. The gospel focuses on the person and work of Christ. Tell them a lot about Jesus. It reveals the exclusive means of reconciliation provided through Christ's salvific work. It's all through Christ. He's the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. He's the one. Tell them about him, forgiveness of sin through Christ, the eternal hope of heaven. Sadly, many today are proclaiming another gospel. This deceptive message promises to meet the felt needs in exchange for a minimal commitment. So, you know, telling people that you could be rich, 
your problems will be solved. The biggest problem we have is our sin problem. So you've got to camp on that. You can be forgiven of your sins if you would turn from your sin and trust Christ as Lord and Savior, believing that he made the full atonement, believing that he's God, believing that he rose from the dead. You need to talk to them about these things. Let's go now to A, the God, and you'll have a blank there. The God-centered message proclaims God's holiness. Somewhere in your gospel presentation, doesn't always have to be at the beginning, even Jesus didn't always witness the same way. Think about that. With the rich young ruler, he said different things to the rich young ruler than he said to the Samaritan woman. Isn't that true? Samaritan woman, it all started with a drink of water, and then he starts talking about living waters. With the rich young ruler, they start talking about commandments. The rich young ruler is talking about how many commandments he kept and all that. And then the Lord makes the challenge. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, come follow me. So in other words, he had to finger that man's idolatry and love for money. And he did. So, but God's holiness is something, this will really help people because they, most people think they're pretty good. But when they compare themselves or when they are compared to God's holiness, Hopefully it makes everybody feel very small and sinful like it did Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. When he was said, I'm a man of unclean lips and all that, when he was witnessing the holiness of God. Scripture proclaims God's holiness. He's absolutely perfect without any sin at all. 1 Samuel 2.2 2 says, There's no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. The word holy in Hebrew means to be separate. It has a lot to do with separateness from sin, cut away from. You can think of the Lord as a big cut above us. He's just, he's different. Some have called him the holy other. He, we can't even compare with him. Do you know anyone that's perfectly holy, that's flawless, has never sinned and can't sin, who dwells in unapproachable light, whose eyes, Habakkuk 1.13 says, his eyes are too pure to approve evil. Can't even look on it. No wonder why sin has such a big punishment. I always like when R.C. Sproul says things like, uh, it's treason against God. You know, we, all of us minimize our sin. It's no big deal. Again, impatient, my wife, hey, what's the big, well, Impatience is a sin in God's sight. Anger is. Lust is. We, we, we think it's no big deal. It's just, hey, I'm Italian. I get mad. You don't use that excuse. There's not, there's not really no excuses to continue in sin. So, But anyway, we grow in holiness. He's holy. We want to be holy like him. But think of God as being able to do nothing wrong. Even in our own minds, sometimes we think, well, why do so many people go to hell? And Here's the thing. There are things about the universe and the nature of man that you and I don't understand that God does. And man is so sinful, isn't he? From the Garden of Eden on, there's great rebellion against God. Romans 1 talks about that, that men suppress the truth, right? In Genesis 6, man, you know, mankind was so evil, that their thoughts were always evil continually. Sin, 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 but God is holy. He's the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow, James 1. He doesn't change. 
He's not going to go from holy to sinful. Any pastor, including myself, can fall into sin and do evil things. You know, I mean, do some evil things to be out of ministry. It's, anybody's capable of it. Anyone in this room who's even a believer is capable of sin. That's why we have to take heed lest we fall, right? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We've got to be careful. But God doesn't have to be careful. He's just holy. He doesn't have to be careful. And so you see why that would be a, a good thing to mention to somebody? A lot of people these days don't know much about God at all. So for you and I to help them understand who God is. You may have to even start with creation. Oh, I'll tell you a good story. This is exciting. So I'm in Hope, my, I'm in Hope Fitness, my second job. And the week before, there was this young lady saying, I want to get a Bible. I want to. Suddenly, this young girl wants to read the Bible. I didn't necessarily witness to her that much. God was already working on her. So I was continuing. She comes back this week. She's got a Bible in her hands. Where do I start? She's so excited to read the Bible. It's crazy. I haven't seen this in a while. I'm just telling you what's happening. And she, I said, well, read some Genesis and read some Matthew. I was having her do both because I'm so eager for her to know Jesus, but she needs to know how it all started and how sin came into the world. And she's reading. And I'm helping the um, person with the disability to exercise. And he's zipping around. He's, he's like all wacky that day. But, and then I, but I'm able to take a break as he's exercising and to say, well, do you see how God made everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she gets to Genesis 3. Do you see how sin came into the world? Oh, yeah, I do, I do. It was amazing. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm looking forward to the next time this young lady comes, but... I don't know, maybe she'll come here someday, but when the Lord's working on somebody, they, they want to know it. You don't have to force it. If somebody doesn't want to hear that day, you've got to go back into your prayer closet for them. But this young lady wanted to hear. She's reading Matthew, and we're talking about the virgin birth, and it was, I haven't seen that in a while like that. She was like the Ethiopian eunuch, you know? I want somebody to explain. Help me to know what it says here. And then Errol went to the pharmacy today. How many ladies were there? Did they seem like they were into the Bible? Yeah, man, we started some James. and They're they all from all different churches. One's from First Baptist, one's from a Calvary Chapel, one's from Smithtown Gospel, and they all want the people want the Bible these days. It's exciting. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off track here. The God-centered message details man's sinful condition. All sin is against God. Everyone is a sinner in rebellion against God. No, now, this is an important statement. Is, is this in your notes? I'm not sure because I have different notes. No matter how moral, kind, or eternally, uh, external, ex eternally, externally loving one appears to be, unbelievers are hopelessly lost in their sin. Is that in your notes? It is, right? That's a good statement. Some unbelievers are nice. But that doesn't mean they're going to heaven. You don't get to heaven by being nice. And by the way, when you... Some nice people, when I've started to talk to them about Jesus, oh, I, I've, met, I've met a nice person recently. And when I was talking to her, very nice, good at what she does. She was helping at Transformation Life. Ooh, but when I mentioned gospel or, not just the gospel, but morality and society, silent treatment. I was like, whoa, look at that. She's nice, she's nice, she's nice, she's nice, she's nice. And then, boom, she shut me down. And then I asked her, well, what happened? Oh, I don't like to talk about certain topics. 
Some people that are nice don't want to know about the true God. Remember that. It's a good statement they put in these notes from Grace Church here. Um, because all we do is tainted with sin, we cannot save ourselves from eternal consequences any more than criminals determine their penalty. Another guy came into the pharmacy and he was so excited that we were talking about spiritual things, but then he was like, man, I treat my customers good. I don't cheat nobody. And you knew he was saying like, because I run my business right, I'm going to heaven. That's what the guy was saying. Because he runs his business right, he's going to heaven. Oh, the rest of us are sinners? I always tell people that if you're good enough to get to heaven, why did Jesus have to bleed and die on the cross? I always bring that up. Because no, my friend, we're sinful. And I like to mention to people about Adam and Eve. They've all usually heard Adam and Eve. And Romans 5.12 says, For therefore sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. We're all sinners. Started with Adam. He passed down that sin disease. It was right down to us. So when you're witnessing to somebody, you may have to spend some time on that if they don't think they're a sinner. Got to help them. Even show them the verse. Not, you're not just debating them on a topic. You want to show them that God's holy word says it. What did David say in Psalm, I think it's 51, Behold, I was brought forth in, in what? In iniquity or sin. In sin, my mother conceived me. We're sinners from the get-go. Do you have to teach kids to do right or to do wrong? Oh, they're ready to do wrong early on. They want food when they want it. If they don't get the food when they want, temper tantrum. If that kid could punch you, he'd punch you. Even a little baby would punch you if he could to get his food. Give me that right now. Boom. I want it now. I want what I want, what I want, what I want. We all got that sin nature, right? Now, everybody's not as sinful as they could be. Go back to the, the nice unbeliever because of civil law, the expectations of his family and society and, and his conscience that God gave. That keeps people in check. I mean, praise be to God. I mean, if, God, if those things weren't there, we'd, everybody would be murdering everybody. It would be just like chaos. Which, by the way, the times we're living in are getting worse and worse. And a tribulation will be worse than that. God's restraining now, and it's gonna, there's going to be less restraint over time as we get into those end times. Anyway, people need to know they're sinners, right? Go to the next one. See, the God-centered message declares Christ as Savior and Lord. And I like this. John MacArthur has always done a good job on not, um, on not separating Savior from Lord. Some people think, well, I'm just going to trust him as my Savior, and, but I'm going to have my fun, and he'll be my Lord later. It doesn't make sense. Because he is Lord, right? You can't really dichotomize him. You can't chop him in half. I just want the Savior part. You can see some real big-time big sinners like, yeah, I just want the Savior part, but this Lord stuff? I mean, then the Holy Spirit's not working on a guy. When, when the Holy Spirit's working on somebody, you know, they're repenting of their sin. They want to they wanna follow Jesus. And very simply, Romans 10, 9, if you, you know, most of you have seen that verse before. I'll just go there. Or I'll read it. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Even Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer. So my notes say here, as Savior, Christ lived a sinless human life, paid the wages of sin on the cross, and conquered sin and death by his resurrection. 
as Lord, he's ruler over everything. Every aspect of life, every dynamic of creation, his rule as Lord cannot be separated from his role as Savior. Right? So when you're talking to somebody, and we can say to them, I'm urging you today to trust in him as Savior and Lord. And what that would mean, my friend, is that you're going to turn from your sin, and certainly you're going to you know, believe that Christ died for your sins and trust in him, but at the same time, he becomes your master. Because he wants to save you to obey him. Didn't Jesus say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? He said that. So we're shooting for Savior and Lord. And then they say here, always comparing a God-centered gospel to the man-centered one, a man-centered gospel fails to connect Christ's authority to every aspect of life. Some think they can accept Christ as Savior, getting their salvation, and later make him Lord. Eh, later on. On my deathbed, I'll make him Lord. No, that's not good, that kind of thing. They mistakenly believe Christ can merely be added on to one's current lifestyle without turning from their sin. That's like somebody trying to come into the kingdom. Didn't Jesus say, narrow is the way? I always use the same illustration all the time, but let's say these are my sins, right? And I'm trying to get in a narrow way. What's going to happen? I'm holding on to my sins for dear life. <laughs> oh, can't get in. I, I, I got to be willing to turn from these things. Right? Does that make sense? You're not holding on to your sin. I want Jesus and all my sins too. No. No. And as, if the Holy Spirit's working on somebody, they're going to be willing to repent. Amen? You know, again, I mean, God is the one who saves, so he's going to be working on them. And that's, that exa that's exactly what D is. The God-centered message calls sinners to repent. There it is. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 10 through 11. That, those verses compare worldly sorrow to godly sorrow. And you've seen it. You've seen it in kids. You might have seen it in your own, in your own self, your husband or wife. Maybe they apologize and they don't really, they not, don't really mean it. I've seen people say, apologize. You need to apologize. And it's like, I apologize. Like they, they yell, they're mad. They're still mad while they're apologizing. Is that really a real sorrow over their sin? Right? I don't know why you, Maria's smiling. It's always easy to use her as an illustration. Let's say Rob needs to apologize. Like, Maria, I apologize for X, Y, and Z. Spells it out. Wouldn't that be better than just I apologize? I apologize for X, Y, and Z. By the way, when you apologize to somebody, be specific. I mean, if you hurt them, right, they say, the words you told me hurt me. I am so sorry I said this. You know, please forgive me. That's even better than I apologize, actually. Please forgive me. Now you're asking for forgiveness to be extended to you even better. When I was talking about Transformation Life Center, where Corey and Holden came from, I saw the cheapest apologies there. And guys were fighting right after they apologized. Just about punch each other out. So godly sorrow would include a brokenness over sin. Let's see what these verses say. And again, I'm reading from the ESV, which translates it different than I'm used to. For godly grief, they say. I like the word sorrow better. I'm so used to it. For godly grief or sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. You see that? A real brokenness over sin. 
And again, I have to keep saying, if the Holy Spirit has worked, if the Holy Spirit's worked, and Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, because otherwise people are not really repenting, right? It's hard for us to always tell. Sometimes we can. For godly grief or sorrow, especially over time, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief or sorrow produces death. So the explanation in our notes now of worldly sorrow, there are two kinds of repentance defined in Scripture. The first kind is worldly sorrow. It's motivated by and primarily concerned with feelings of embarrassment, being caught, thoughts of regret over consequences of one's actions. How many guys have gone to prison and they're just bummed out that they got caught and its consequences? Yeah, that's sorrowful. But hey, this has nothing to do with a real a real sorrow over what they did. I got caught. Doggone it, I got caught. That's it. This repentance leads only to death and does not result in forgiveness of sins or reconciliation with God or eternal life. The second kind of repentance is called godly sorrow. A repentance without regret leading to salvation. This genuine repentance is motivated by a solemn and urgent turning from sin responds in submission to God. There it is. The, the Lord is the Lord of their life. Submission to God, resulting in forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and eternal life. Once the Holy Spirit has enabled an unbeliever to understand their desperate need for salvation through Jesus Christ, the unbeliever must respond in genuine repentance. So there it is. And that's what we're praying for. You want to pray for that. And why would you rush it? Let's say you, you're speaking with somebody, they seem so hardened in their sin. They're like, you know what? I ain't going to give up my drinking, and I'm going to keep shacking up with this woman. That guy's not ready. I said, oh, but don't you want to turn from those sins to Jesus? Nope. Well, what does that tell you? He's not ready. Got to pray for him. Got to pray for him. Even people, you meet Hindus that are not ready to give up their gods. Hindus have been telling me that there's thousands of them, and they can choose which one they want and all this kind of thing. I'm like, well, Jesus is the only one who died and rose. I like to always like, make Jesus sound so unique, because he is so much different than all their gods, to say, wait a second, he's a real person that really came. It's documented what he did. You tell me Hanuman's a monkey god. What's the evidence for Hanuman? I might even ask them. All right, give me the evidence for, for Hanuman. I'm waiting. Oh, it says in the Bhagavad Gita. I'm looking for hard evidence. Now, let me tell you about Jesus. He died, rose from the dead. His body's never been found on earth. Let me tell you about Jesus. The Hebrew prophets wrote about him before he came in detail. Let me tell you about Jesus. The apostles were eyewitnesses, and then they wrote down. And we've got a consistent, progressive revelation that speaks about him that has the marks of inspiration, proof of inspiration. So sometimes you've got to really reason with people. And that's fine. If they let you reason with them, keep going with it. If they're, if they're going back and forth and it's a healthy exchange, keep going. But always try to get to Jesus and his uniqueness and his greatness and who he is and what he did. That's, that's where you got to go. That's where you got to go. I was talking with a Jewish lady recently. That was a great conversation. And you know, I said to her one thing that, and I really, it really hit me. When I said, um, why don't Jews spread the news about Judaism to people. You're not tell, you're not, you wouldn't go around telling me and others, me Gentiles, about Jesus? I mean, about your Jewish faith? 
And he said, yeah, we don't do that. I said, well, that's interesting. I would think that the true God with the true faith would want you to spread it. Oh, but the Muslims say, well, we do. Yeah, oh, yeah, you force people. I wouldn't think that he'd force people either. Like you guys do, you know, believe in Muhammad or we'll chop your head off or something. I mean, believe in Allah. Let's go to Roman numeral three. What time do we got anyway? Was it 745? Just so I know. Okay, good. Let's go to three now. The method. How should we evangelize? This is important now. This um, workbook, which I ordered them, it'll be coming in the mail, ordered right from Grace Church. Um, this book is going to give us actually verses and details. This is kind of an overview of the things we need to include. But now it's going to talk about the type of life that we should live. Does that make sense that we really want to adorn the gospel? We don't want to live contrary to it. You know, if you're at your job and you cause a lot of trouble at your job, you're always late, you yell at the boss, you're impatient with people, that, your witness is not going to be as strong. Even if you got the right gospel, you can say everything right about Jesus, but you kind of mess things up by how you, how you lived. Can God still work with that? Of course. On the other hand, look at the notes. No matter what method or style, you're the starting point. Live a transformed life. Live the life in front of them. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. You do have to be different than the people at your job, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Be spirit-filled. Love, joy, the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness coming out of your life. Good works. A good word for people. You know when you're prayed up and you've been reading God's word and you have a cheery disposition. I like the way Spurgeon used to call it a winsome personality. You're winsome. Rather than getting in there and you're either mad or you're always down or by God's grace. How we think, our outline says, determines how we speak and act. Sinful words and actions come from a sinful thinking. Righteous words and actions come from righteous thinking. The believer's mind has been transformed from enslavement to sinful lust and selfish desires, submissive to Christ. Well, if we're following Christ, you know, meditating on his word should come out in our lives. So that's why they say in the next paragraph to renew our minds. We talk about that a lot. Renew your mind. Put your mind on what's good, what's noble, what's right. Drop down to the outcome is your Christ the outcome is your Christian influence in an unbelieving word world. I'm sorry. Your lifestyle must authenticate the message. That's a good word. That ha that's in your notes, right? Your lifestyle must authenticate the message. As believers, our lives should adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. I like what it says in 1 Peter 3, 7, when it speaks about the qualifications for elders. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he not, not, might not fall into patterns of sin. or I'm sorry, fall into disgrace into the snare of the, of the devil. Other translations would say that he should have a good what? Reputation with outsiders. If our neighbors think we're obnoxious and a jerk, is that going to help our witness? And if they can legitimately say that, not say, oh, I'm being persecuted. Well, make sure you're persecuted for giving them the truth, not for acting stupid. Does that make sense? 
You don't want to be the most obnoxious lady or guy at your job. Don't do it. Christians actually should be pretty good people to be around. Everybody shouldn't run away from you. Except if they're turning away from the gospel, yes. Some are going to persecute you to no end. Others are going to respect. They may not believe right away what you say, but they're going to respect it. So the question they have in our notes is, what is your influence at home, at work, or in your neighborhood? The most eloquent and fluent gospel presentation is muted and sometimes nullified if unbelievers know you by patterns of sin in your life, temper, gossiping, lust, or not delivered with love. It's all about love, too. Can the unbelievers in our, among our relatives, neighborhood, or jobs pin a big sin on us? I'll just take me. Chris always has a temper. Chris is always talking about people. Chris has a lustful mind. He's always looking at the ladies all over the place. Chris, he doesn't show any love to us. That would be bad, right? Should be quite the opposite. I'll say, take the, take the name Joe. Imagine if your boss was saying, yeah, Joe, he's so patient with everybody, even when people wrong him. Man, you never catch Joe talking bad about anybody. Man, you never catch, Joe is not looking at the ladies, he doesn't have a poster up in his office, you know, whatever. Joe, he lo really loves his wife. He talks well of his wife, treats her well, as far as what we can see. The notes here say, are you a doer of the word or a hearer only? You don't want to hear the word and study the word and not change. We should, there should be spiritual growth in our lives all the time. Is your life characterized by good works that reflect the glory of God? Actually, keep, look for opportunities to be a blessing to people, especially the unbelievers too. Well, do good to all men, especially those in the household of faith. But look for how you can, how can you bless your neighbors? Even a good word, a, you know, ask them how they're doing. The cons consistent example of a changed life is compelling proof of salvation. I'm going to read from James 1 just for a second. Remember when James said this? If anyone thinks that he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. If we run our mouth foolishly at our jobs, that would include gossip, slander, off-color jokes, negative stuff. If we're just running our mouths the wrong way, it's saying our religion is worthless? On the contrary, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Don't forget that part. So actually doing good works to the hurting and others and keeping away from the sins of the world. Kind of being clean. I'm clean from the world. Clean in Christ. What does B say? Maintain a lifestyle of prayer. So not only live a transformed life, maintain a lifestyle of prayer. Should we pray for unbelievers? Absolutely. Didn't we read before 
from 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. See, there it is again, quiet, peaceful life. This is good and acceptable, right, in the sight of God. It's pleasing to God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, come to a knowledge of the truth. So, our notes say, and, and, and rightfully so, I like the way they phrase this. Continually intercede for the salvation of unbelievers around you. That's why, by God's grace, every Wednesday when we come in from 6.30 to 7, we pray. And we should add more unbelievers to that list. Or when you come in, just pray for some unbelievers. 6.30 to 7, prayer. 7 to 8, generally, the study. And the time together. Music. Same thing on Sunday nights. Always going to start with some prayer. We start at 6. We're going to start with some prayer. It may not be a whole half an hour, maybe 15 minutes or so. It doesn't have to be the same every time. But I'm starting to really want to pray all the time with people. Does it make sense? It does say pray without ceasing. Here, look at your notes. Continually intercede for the salvation of unbelievers around you. Pray specifically. Pray earnestly. Pray relentlessly that God will draw them to himself and the message you proclaim in love will be used in that process. Pray for people by name. As you pray, ask God to help you to find the opportunities to present the gospel as well as to give you wisdom and courage. If you pray at the beginning of the day, Lord, I want to help me to speak to somebody today. The Lord is able to guide you that day to that person. It may be when you're leaving that deli or something like that or a store after work and you think you've got to run home. And I've had that happen a lot of times where I'm kind of zipping and then I pass somebody, I was like, no, I can't, no, I gotta, I gotta talk to him. I go back. I've even driven back sometimes where I couldn't get that person off my heart. Was God's Spirit working on me or something like that? Sure, possibility. The Lord is tugging at me. There's always somebody to witness to, there's always somebody to befriend. Pray for it. As you pray, ask God to help you find the opportunities to present the gospel as well as to give you wisdom and courage. But above all, pray that God would be glorified through your obedience and making his message heard to a needy people. And then they, they give us some more verses. In Colossians 4, the Apostle Paul, it's wonderful. The Apostle Paul was always praying for an open door for the gospel. Right? He was always thinking of the gospel spreading. Pray for opportunities. Open doors. Colossians 4, 3 to 4. Praying at the same time for us as well that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I'm also in prison in order that I, make it, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. He's praying for two things, right? Open door for the gospel and that he can make it clear. Again, you're not trying to snow unbelievers. You're trying to give them the gospel clearly. Even in preaching, we're supposed to make things clear. It's what it's all about. Making truth clear to people. Again, I think I said last time, you may have to explain some terms, right? You don't just say to the unbeliever, I want you justified so you can get sanctified, so you can be glorified. 
I don't know. Why, why am I using a southern accent when I do that? I don't know. But that's like a southern preacher. You, you use these terms. Does an unbeliever know justification, sanctification, glorification? They probably don't know those terms. You need to believe today in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Well, you've got to explain what Jesus did for them and explain atonement, what it was, and you might even use Old Testament examples and talk about atonement. There's a lot of people who haven't even heard the word atonement. They don't know what it means. Don't go so fast. I've seen, whether myself or others, witness to somebody so fast, you don't even know what the unbeliever is, if he's even processing it. And blah, 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 you're almost like an auction. Slow down. And then you've got to see, actually, I like to ask the unbeliever a question. Do you understand what I was saying about Jesus there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, not at all. He's just a prophet. Oh, then I've got to go back and explain more. Try to, like, see what's happening. There's a lot of ways to witness that are not so good. We have to all get better at it. I want to be a better fisher of men. Don't you? That's why we're doing this. By the way, next Tuesday night, next Tuesday night, same thing, 6.30 prayer, 7 o'clock, go out to the neighborhood next Tuesday. If you want to go out, we'll do it. Maybe even on a Wednesday we should do it. Maybe one of these times we take half the time and you say, how do we do it? Here's one way. You might have to go to Target to pick something up. We arm you with Gospels of John, New Testaments, and Jesus films. And you and somebody else go in there, naturally buy your stuff, and naturally get in a conversation with somebody. Oh, that's a beautiful little girl you have, beautiful boy you have there, little girl you have there. You know, I don't know. You, so many ways to get in conversations. Yankees are doing good. Mets are doing good. Yankees are doing bad. How are you doing today? I've even seen some people look really sad. Are you okay today? And some have been honest with me to say they're not. The Lord will give you wisdom. Sam's Club. The convenience store. Dunkin' Donuts. People go in there to sit. You sit there talking with somebody, your person you're fellowshipping with, two or three together. Somebody at another table. Get into a conversation. Bridge spiritually like Jesus did with the Samaritan woman. He went from getting a drinking water to living water. You can do it. You can do it. We can do it. Well, let's pray. Let's end there. Let's pray.